Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast. I'm Phil Dobby. Professor Steve Keen is with us again. And today we look at how in the UK living standards seem to be going backwards. Salaries are going up by 2.3% a year, but prices are increasing 2.7%. And it seems to be happening all around the world. Salaries are going nowhere. What's happening? Well, Steve Keen is with us. After all, it is his show. Uh, so, Steve, I mean, conventional theory would tell us the wages should be going up because, after all, UK unemployment has been falling. It's at 4.6%, back to pre-financial crisis levels. That, that's what many would consider close to full employment. So there should be competition for people, which should create wage inflation. But it's not happening. Why is that? A combination of things. I mean, for a start, the UK, the reason inflation is up here at the moment is because of the devaluation of the pound after the um, after Brexit, when it's only about 20%. So it's inevitably some of that, but no, not by no means the entire lot comes through as increased prices. Uh, the reason it's not the entire lot is that uh, uh, importers are often trying to hang on to market share, and they they tend to not move prices as much as the exchange rate move tends to be. So it's often yeah. about only about 20 25% of the exchange rate movement gets passed through to prices. But if you're seeing about a 20% fall in the value of the, of the pound, and you're imagining you're importing something, you know, some, some substantial part of your, your consumption is imported, uh, then you, you're seeing a change of prices of the order of about 1.5% to 2% out of that is, is a very low level of pass-through, but it still affects people when their wages aren't rising. Right. Before, so that's, before that's we move on, just, uh, just on yeah. that, I mean, that could actually potentially get worse as well, of course, because you mentioned 20%, whether it's 18 or 20% of the devaluation of, the, of, of sterling. But, of course, that's based against the US dollar, and the, uh, and the, the euro went down quite a bit as well. Uh, but now we're, mm-hmm. see, now we're seeing uh, the euro strengthening against the, the UK pound. So we could find, and, and, you know, 40% of our goods come from Europe, we could find that the exchange rate gets even worse. So that could be pushing inflation even higher. Yeah, that's, that's one of those external factors that you really you know, can't do much about domestically. Mm. The thing is, why the art workers are organising and fighting for higher wages? And it's because the whole idea of organisers, of, of workers organising and fighting for something's been kicked out the window over the last 40 years of bashing on trade unions. So um, that, that has actually weakened uh, employees in the sense they don't have anybody going and doing the bargaining for them. Anything like they used to have. You, you basically have unionism uh, rest- constrained to parts of the public service and some of the large industrial processes. But most of the new hires are unionised and therefore if they're going to bargain over anything, they have to um, go and do the bargaining themselves. Right. So, so you think that, so that, that is a major form of yeah. So you think that's the but, key but, thing? Because I mean, because I mean, I'm no, sh- right. no, okay. No, Cause, that's cause, not, not the key thing. Okay. Well, let's before the, we get onto the, the key, key thing, thing. Just to, before we get onto yeah, that, though, yeah. I mean, just looking yeah. at that, the uh, the counter to that would be: Do we need trade unions when there are so many people employed? Because in theory, if somebody says, "Well, we're going to give you a crap wage," you could say, "Well, look, I can go and get a slightly better wage somewhere else. I'm not going to take it." Well, it actually might raise the question of just how much uh, uh, the, the, the current statistics. People employment are like what they were back in the 1950s when you had similar levels of, of employment. 
and because uh, we know a lot of the employment that exists now is zero contract hours, yeah. uh, very very tenuous employment compared to what was the common element uh, back in back in the early days, and a lot of the recorded fallen and unemployment is because people are now being shown as self-employed. They're actually in effect being forced to be contractors because they they don't have a full-time uh, employment uh, position, and they're therefore you know very much isolated. If they if they found themselves getting lots of competitive offers for the same work. So you had two supermarket companies competing over your zero time, zero hour contract to come and stack the shelves at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, then you may find, okay, well, I'll bargain and take along with a higher wage. But if there's only one doing it for you, then you are very isolated and, and unable to really bargain. Uh, so I, I, I'm very sceptical about the, the quality of the statistics these days, not as much as in America where they're outrageously bad. Yeah. Uh, the English, When you look at the English figures for the unemployment rate and the employment rate, they make sense. One is consistent with the other because we've talked about beforehand yeah. on, the, on the podcast when you compare the unemployment rate to the employment rate in America, they're completely inconsistent and it's, it's obvious that the unemployment stats are masking a large level of underemployment well, the, the, and that's why you're not seeing... Yeah. yeah. There is quite a, quite, a, quite a depth to the data that the Office of National Statistics produces. Actually, one of them, which is interesting, which is very relevant to what we're talking about, is uh, showing the most common hourly rate for workers. And it's it's bunched around £7, which is the minimum wage. And if you look back over the years, it's always bunched around the minimum wage. So, it's the, so that shows the minimum wage is doing its job. And if it wasn't there, um, then presumably people would be getting paid less. So again, that, that pushes the argument that, you know, whether it's a... a in enforcing a minimum wage so people don't get screwed over or having more powerful unions to help help negotiations um uh, that seems to be making the situation what what is a bad situation worse because of course we know yeah. that the increases are happening at the big end of town it's the lower paid workers whose salaries have stagnated or are falling yeah and the usual economic arguments say that wages are basically reflecting the margin product of labor there's a bit of piece of economic jargon but that the argument is you have a competitive market uh Suppliers can't influence the price individually. Uh, uh, suppliers of labour can't influence price individually. Um, the buyers of labour can't can't themselves do the same. So you get this nice point of uh, equality between supply and demand. And as it happens, the supply curve is what uh, capitalists get out of hiring workers, which is the marginal product of the worker, and therefore that's the real wage. Now that's total bunkum yeah. um, for a whole range of, of, of reasons. Um, but the uh, the what, what really saying is there's no market power now the reality is uh, even without uh, the levels of, of, of you know, destruction of unions that have happened in the last 40 years there is market power uh, and when you have an individual worker and in a you know, firm with a thousand employees going up and trying to individually bargain for their wage that's very very different to them collectively doing it and uh, intriguingly one of the reasons I became a critic of mainstream economics was having this explained to me using conventional theory this is back when i was in, in 1971 when i was a whole 18 year old and i believed in all this free market stuff and then the lecturer for the course frank Stiller, who's now professor of political economy emeritus at sydney university frank was lecturing the first year class and he explained what's called the theory of the second best to us and that argued that uh, okay the, the, the market theory says you know uh, isolated employers bargaining with isolated workers best social outcome but what if you have both trade unions and monopolies bargaining between the two what happens if you remove one or the other now when you have the 
the uh, it's, a bit, it's a bit complicated. I can see the diagrams in my head, but it's rather hard to try <laughs> to verbalise them. But the supply and demand curves have also marginal uh, curves related to them, uh, which called there's the marginal supply price and the marginal demand price. And what they imply is that if it is not the case that you uh, that you don't have any power, therefore, so it is the case that you do have marketing power, and your purchases do affect the price. You're you're not isolated in the in the classic sense that uh, mainstream economics talks about. Then the, the supply price is is lower, and the demand price is higher. And if you find the point of intersection of those two curves, that's where you get if you have monopoly bargaining with um, with um, uh, a trade with a, a trade union, but the actual range is indeterminate. It's between where, where one of these curves crosses the supply curve, another crosses the demand curve. They get this huge range uh, between the two, and right. the point is that given their situation, the wage will fall between those two extremes, which is much higher than the marginal product of labour and much lower than the marginal product of labour. Right now, but, if you then yeah. Uh, yeah if you then abolish the, the, the theory of the second best says. If you abolish one or the your, your ideal at this point, where the demand and supply curve intersect, you're actually uh, given this reality: there's market power on both sides. Trade unions have bargaining power, and so do the so do the employers. Then you've got this indeterminate range. Where do you fall on the range? Well, that's you know literally bargaining. You, you can't economically determine it's got to be due to power. If you remove one or the other, do you get better? Do you move closer to the ideal of workers getting their marginal products? The answer is categorically no. If you remove monopolies, then workers would get higher than their marginal product. If you remove the trade union, workers get lower than their marginal product. Now, yeah. this is using conventional theory, which has got other flaws as well. But even on conventional theory, there's sort of abolish one side of the bargaining equation and you will bias the outcome in favour of the power of the other side. Yeah. Now, yeah. what have we been doing for the last 40 years? We've been abolishing trade unions. Yeah, yeah. That, um, so, that, even even, even, yeah. even yeah. without picturing the graph, I mean, that makes perfect sense. You've got, uh, mm. uh, you've got two issues there where the power might be too strong and they're fighting against each other, so it equalises things. That makes, mm. that's, that, 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 makes, yeah. that makes perfect sense. And obviously, if you've got a monopoly and the union is very strong and the union says we want to push up wages, the monopoly says, oh, well, that's fine, we'll just push up prices because uh, we've got no competition. Yeah, well, that's, well that's, that, that's the other side. Again, there's so many flaws in this argument that you can leave it to the market. It's ridiculous. And the other one's the thing you've just you know, tangentially mentioned there, which <laughs> is what's the macroeconomic impact of a wage rise? Yeah. Because it doesn't really... I know, nobody ever considers what's the macroeconomic impact of increasing the price of bananas. Okay? Because, you know, if you bananas rise in price, you can buy another fruit substitution, all the micro sort of stuff matters. But if you're talking labour, the only reason people are buying labour is for macroeconomic reasons. Mm. You don't hire workers because you like the taste of workers. Well, let's, let's, let's hope that's not why you buy them, hire them. Um, <laughs> uh, you hire them because there's a derived demand for their services, which comes out of the macro economy. Now, at the same time, the workers are about something in the order of 70%, 60 to 70% of total consumption. So what happens to wages gets passed through to the macro level quite dramatically and then you have to ask well what are the impacts of those changes in terms of the distribution of income and the level of income and therefore the level of demand and uh, this is a little thing I've, I've you and I'll be talking about this one in a short while my little Tom Dick Haria example of, um, of uh, mac the macroeconomic impact of micro behavior like trying to save money for example uh, when you have workers getting a higher wage they will spend more. And it's anybody getting more income will spend more. 
So increasing incomes, which is what you do by putting up wages, increases spending as well. Expenditure rises too. And then, with, of course, the individual employer will pay a higher wage, but may well find, particularly depending on the market segment they're in, an increase in their demand too. And the macroeconomic impact of this is actually indeterminate and may often be positive. And one of the reasons for that, and this comes back to what I see as the main reason why wages have fallen relative to other income sources in the last uh, 40 years, is that the real people who pay for the high level of private debt these days, my favourite topic, yeah. are workers. Yeah. And that's, that's slightly complicated. I explain it in, uh, in the latest book. Um, but the basic logic is that you have a, you have a, at least you've got to, you consider at least three social classes when analysing capitalism. You can't just say it's workers and capitalists; there are bankers as well. And then you, if you imagine, this is what I did with my my original model of Minsky some decades ago. Now, when I modelled Minsky, I had um, possibly the ideal situation: that the only borrowing going on is to build factories. It was only done by firms, and so it's all non-Ponzi in that sense. You're not trying. It wasn't modelling speculative, uh, borrowing money for speculative reasons. You're borrowing because you were investing. Now, in that little model, one of the remarkable outcomes of, of it was that even though it was the firms who were paying the debt, before the crisis hit, the increase in, in bankers' share of income was completely paid for by the fallen workers' share. In other words, capitalists sort of sailed straight through the middle. The increasing amount of money they were giving to bankers to pay the higher level of debt that they uh, got themselves into to build factories was offset by fallen workers' wages. And that is a, a tendency which is ironclad coming just out of the simple definitions, as I explained again earlier, of, of wages share of GDP, the debt ratio and the employment rate. Put that together with the simplest possible uh, a, a model to a, a relationships between the variables to make it into a model, and that drops out as a as a as a rigid outcome. Right. So, words, put, so, it's, so, it's so, so to put it simply, so to put it simply, I'm yep. I'm uh, I'm a business that's expanding. I borrow money um, to expand, uh, and I'm now having to finance that debt. And so, to try and keep the books balanced, I've got less money to pay workers, so I pay workers less. In effect, it's slightly more. It's it's more complex than that, but that's the basic idea. So consequently, the fall in income going to workers, the lower wages we've seen, are a product of the rising level of debt in the society. They're the ones who actually pay for it. Right. And uh, and and this and this is the, that's the that's the additional cause that I see that other people don't see because this came out of my complex systems modelling. It was quite a remarkable uh, when I first saw it. I did this way back in 1992 when I was working out the stability conditions of my model and. What I found was, first of all, whether we went to a, whether the model converts to an equilibrium, meaning you've got a stable debt ratio and a stable um, employment rate and, and, and stable um, wages share, whether you've got that or you've got the breakdown where the debt level continued to rise, it was the workers who paid for it. Not the capitalists, right? So if so, you, if you turned it around, yeah. then so if you said because I, you know, as I mentioned, we've got this cluster of people who are working at the minimum wage. So clearly, the minimum wage is mm. having have, having an impact. If you increase the minimum yeah. wage, say from seven pounds, say you doubled it, say it's it's going to be fifteen pounds an hour uh, from now on. It's going to make labour much more expensive for biz, for businesses. Um, they're they're going to cry foul over uh, over that, but presumably it would mean that they would have less of an ability to borrow because um because they because they wouldn't be able to repay because they because their wages bill is so high well they also have inflation coming out of it because if you put the wages up that much then they put up prices as well yeah but the workers would also spend the wages they got so you get increased aggregate demand uh, offsetting the increased costs you are facing as an employer 
And what you'd be doing is reducing the, the, the net value of the debt you're paying on. So, in fact, your debt servicing costs could fall. And therefore, the distribution, even though you're paying a higher amount in wages, the distribution of effects of that on, on pure capitalists as opposed to pure bankers would be an increase in their share of... Uh, well, their, their share remains constant, relatively. What had happened is workers' share would go up and bankers' share would go down. So that's a good thing. It's a good thing, but it won't happen because it's uh, nobody wants... <laughs> politically in this country, you try to get bankers' share of income reduced. Uh, <laughs> and this is... This is the, the, and that's why I talk about the political financial complex these days rather than the uh, military-industrial complex. But the issues... So they've, are, got the, you know, they've, but the, yeah, they've got the politicians about the balls, <laughs> and uh, the workers don't have the kind of capacity to squeeze them as the bankers do. Right. But it, it seems like it's the only answer to this question, isn't it? Why are salaries not going up? The answer is, well, the only way that we are going to push salaries, because they are obviously going up for the bankers, and the uh, the only way is to is to increase that minimum wage. The only way you're ever going to achieve it is by changing the regulations. To some extent, I mean, it, it's it's also once you've got this level of uh, the debt overhang, then that basically rules everything else, uh, and causing inflation by putting up wages and therefore devaluing the outstanding value of the debt that uh, firms and everybody else owes to the banking sector. That's one way to reduce that debt burden, and that's what I infect. What, I, in fact, I see is having happened back in 73, 74, because that, that was the actual first uh, global financial crisis uh, in that there was a, a bubble in, in real estate and a general investment across the globe, uh, particularly, obviously, in, in my little hometown of Sydney, as it happens, which then burst, but it burst in the context of wage rises when very strong trade unions existed of the order of 20% wage rises. Uh, at the same time as the ballooning OPEC uh, oil prices as well. And with that whole, uh, basically, the people who can bargain by collective action when there's high employment, which is both the workers and raw material suppliers, uh, getting getting an increase in their share, that actually gave us an inflationary surge that took the sting out of the the debt servicing problem that that capitalists had got themselves into and the borrowing binge in, in 1973. So rather than OPEC causing a crisis back in 74, I think it actually avoided us having one uh, by the very inflationary factors we're talking about right now. Right. Okay. So, yeah, because inflation obviously is, it, it can be a good thing because it does devalue your, uh, devalue your debt. What about, uh, what about productivity? Is that part of the issue? If people could produce more, is, their wages yeah. would go up, presumably, uh, or a company would think, well, look, they're worth paying this more. Is a bit, this is one of these little complex ones as well. It takes a bit of uh, digging into the, the mathematics of a, of a monetary economy to work out. But I, I, this is a bit of a long story, but when I wanted to change my, build my model from a model without price dynamics to one with, I was really pissed off to find that I had to start from supply and demand. Uh, to get somewhere, because I could have imposed a model of markup pricing due to uh, a, a great non-orthodox economist called Mikhail Kolesky, but I didn't want to do that. I wanted to derive it from first principles, and I thought, bloody hell, I have to work from supply and demand. So I've got a flow of supply, which is the goods coming onto the market, given labour productivity, and then a flow of demand coming in the other direction, which reflected both um, workers' wages and, and bankers' incomes and so on. And lo and behold, what out of the equation was Kolesky's markup pricing equation. Uh, which, in other words, which, <laughs> it's a long story, but what it, what it meant was that the actual cause of, of inflation ends up being whether wages are rising faster than productivity. So to get inflation, you actually have to have wage rises. It isn't the other way around. So the productivity, uh, the reason that, again, workers' wages have fallen over the long term, and this turns up in, in my, my complex system as 
people is that wage rises have been below, uh, trending down towards and then setting up being below increases in labour productivity. So workers are getting less and less of the increase in productivity of society over time. And that itself is a recipe for more of that going not to capitalists but to bankers, and then we have a financial crisis. Mm. And I mean, it also reduces the incentive, doesn't it? If you know that uh, you are getting... Uh a smaller slice of the pie continually and i'm sure that's the way most workers think they think well i'm not going to i'm not going to pull my finger out on this it's just a job i'll just do the minimum this is unfortunate ending up in the soviet situation which is quite hilarious people who promote proposed this stuff see themselves as promoting capitalism but we're starting to get the sort of behavior from workers where they only work because they're scared of not having their job but if you do get to full employment in that situation then they yeah you can have the soviet effect of you're pretending to pay us so we'll pretend to work (laughs) (laughs) speaking of somebody who's been to cuba recently that's exactly the syndrome i saw over there uh now if we get back to the point where you have um uh, you know, when actually might be genuinely true, let's say the economy's got enough demand that people actually, you know, those who want a job have got one and there's a shortage, uh, then, yeah, in that situation, not only are you likely, you might get some wage increases, though not much because of lack of bargaining power, but you might get shithouse productivity. Now, that actually <laughs> ends up increasing workers' share, but actually reducing everybody's welfare at the same time. Yeah. Look, I'm, and I look inside companies that, you know, I've either worked for myself or I have association with. And I see a lot of, I see a lot of, a lot of unproductive people who seem to have created this situation in large corporations where there's a lot of people whose job seems to be pushing bits of paper around or having very lengthy meetings in which nothing is discussed. And, uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm so pleased to say that I haven't experienced that in the university sector whatsoever, and everybody who does the job over there is doing absolutely valuable work. Well, thank, thank God there's one sector gang. where that's happening. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, is, is there an? I mean, so there's that. There's not that economic drive. People obviously within within companies. I don't know. We yeah. maybe, maybe we're getting a little bit away from the economic theory here, but I'm sure there's an economic point to be made here that you are so there, far there, away there is, from the profit motive yeah. of the company. Um, that you you just do spend your time going around in circles. Yeah, I mean, we've got to take these cobwebs off our eyes over all this stuff because the model, again, the neoclassical model, and this is the point Kate Raworth makes very nicely in her her new book, The Donut Economics, the model that we've we've got of supply and uh, it just permeates our way of thinking about virtually everything, and it's simply a false model. So in this particular case, what we've got in our mind is this idea of uh, labour, where every last worker adds to our, uh, adds to production, and uh, and 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 confirms which are just uh, hell bent on profit maximisation. Uh, but if you look at what's actually happening in the real world, only a tiny fraction of the workforce now is actually involved in producing anything. Mm. Uh, you, you look at the manufacturing workforce in, in even in China, places like China is less than one third of the population. In places like England, it's less than ten percent of the population. Uh, the of the remaining of the, those who are in the workforce might be another 70-80% of the workforce who are involved in jobs that do not produce anything. And this is what David Graeber calls bullshit jobs. And it's a fascinating phenomenon. It's got The economic basis of it fundamentally is that you, you need this infrastructure you know, in, in organisations to do the accounts, etc., etc., to, uh, to promote the products, yada, 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 to sue other companies because they think they're infringing their product. On it goes, a huge range of jobs which are basically about, again, asserting power rather than produce, having an increase in output and productivity. But we've got models that actually eliminate the vision of power from our thinking completely. 
And when you put that illusion of power in, then, yeah, it, it's it's true on a whole range of fronts that uh, people are being paid for jobs that are actually, if anything, negative in physical productivity. Uh, and that the bargaining power of, of the of the financial companies and then the capitalists versus the workers is massively skewed in favour of bankers and then capitalists and finally workers right now. Um, and most of the workers are being paid for jobs which are only there because we can't automate them yet, but we're going to. And frankly, that would be a better world if we then shared the benefits of that automation, but the odds are we're hitting in the Hunger Games instead. Yeah, okay. Well, and we will talk about that uh, in, a, in a couple of episodes' time. So to finish off for today, though, so, so in a nutshell, the, the question was, why are salaries going nowhere? And it is because uh, companies now are leveraging so highly. If we, but what do we do about it? I mean, because it it's an issue faced uh-huh. around the world. No one knows the answer, it seems, apart from Steve Keen or, or people who believe him. Um, so, so is there a short-term solution? Not really, no. I mean, in, in, in that sense, the, the only solution would be for bumping up something like the minimum wage and, and causing inflation that way. But, of course, the political chances of that are pretty close to zero. Um, it's happening in some parts of the states, but we're going in the opposite direction right now. Right, on that cheerful note, Steve, uh, good to talk. <laughs> As always, uh, we'll catch you again in a few days. Good, good to talk for now. Okay, mate. Bye. So it's uh, no longer the capitalists and the workers, it's the capitalists and the financiers and the workers and the financiers are taking a bigger slice of the pie. Is that what's happening? Because there's absolutely no doubt, is there, that wage inflation has stalled, living standards are going backwards, and nobody seems to know how to fix the issue. That's it for this time on the Debunking Economics podcast. Uh, We'll be back again with Professor Steve Keen next time. I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.